Bible, please open with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, one final time in Peter's second epistle. Over the last 18 months or so, maybe 16 months, we have kind of journeyed through First and Second Peter with uh, a few breaks and pauses in the middle, but it has been a companion and a teacher and a friend to us to, to study these writings of, of this dear disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so coming to, to this end, I think, is in a way, it's a little bit bittersweet. Uh, we'll be in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18 this morning, and the title of the message is Final Charges to the Church. And, and I hope that title sounds a little bit dramatic because it's supposed to, because these are the final scriptural words, again, of this beloved disciple of Christ who walked in Christ's inner circle. Now, all scripture, of course, is inspired by the Lord, but these are the last words of that dear saint who walked so closely with the Lord. And so, again, um, in a way, it's very bittersweet to, to come to the end of Peter's writings, and I hope they've been an encouragement to you as they have been to me. We know that Peter likely died shortly after this letter, and so, in, in a way, this is kind of his final will and Testament, much like Second Timothy is for the Apostle Paul. And, and Peter leaves us with a wealth of instruction, a wealth of exhortation. He kind of goes through a series of exhortations in these last several verses of this letter. And, and he, he does this as he's striving to show the church and encourage the church how we must live in the last days when things get very difficult, very challenging, and, and very hard. Peter writes with a lot of urgency. That's kind of been common to our understanding of Peter's epistles is that he writes with this sense of urgency. He's short and quick and to the point, as you'll see when we read this text, he really ends almost even without a, a goodbye. He just kind of abruptly cuts off because he's done. He's made his point and he's done writing. So let's look at this text. Let's read our text and then we'll ask the Lord to Bless our time together as we study his word. Would you please, if you're able, stand with me as we give attention to the reading of Scripture. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. This is holy, inerrant, infallible Scripture, the very words of God to us. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction." You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And God, all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. 
Our great Father, we bow before you now. We understand that we are coming into the presence of a God who is holy, holy, holy. You are the creator and sustainer of all things, the sovereign ruler of all creation. You are the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You have existed from eternity past and you will exist to eternity future. You are on your throne and you reign. Lord, you deserve all honor and praise. You're worthy of every offering, every song of praise, every thanksgiving, every act of worship. Lord, you are worthy. Lord, what a great salvation it is that we know in and through Christ. For all in Adam have fallen. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of your glory. We were your enemies, making war against you as we chased after the desires of the flesh. And when there's nothing good in us, while we were your enemies, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, how can we neglect so great a salvation? How can we not look to the cross find hope and glory how can we question your faithfulness how can we wander from our own steadfastness in the commands that you have given us in your word Lord how dare we follow after the desires of the flesh after the truth has been revealed to us Lord, would you make known to us today the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lord, would you sanctify us by your great and holy truth? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts, Lord, that are soft and humble and eager and ready to receive and apply the truth. Lord, that's only possible through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. If your Spirit is not among us and at work in each of our hearts, then we have gathered in vain. If your Spirit does not come and take your word and plant it in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit, we are without hope. Lord, while the preaching and teaching of your word is an action of men and a reception of, of men and women and children, Lord, we understand that that only happens through your spirit. It's only by your grace. It's only because of your great mercy do we even have the ability to hear and to think and to read. Lord, it's only by your kindness that we're able to gather together to worship. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do the work in us today that you intend to accomplish. Pray that we would be attentive 
pray that we would be focused. I pray that we would give all diligence, knowing that the best of our diligence is but a feeble and frail act, but knowing that you require it of us. Lord, we're so thankful to be washed in the blood of Christ. We're so thankful that the guilt of our sins were nailed upon Christ at the cross, that he bore the burden of our condemnation. And we're thankful that we have life in him. And bearing that in mind, Lord, I pray that we would live all of our life to your glory, that we would die to ourselves and live for Christ. Lord, would you be glorified among us today? We ask in Christ's name, amen. So these final verses of 2 Peter are, in a way, they are a double conclusion. Peter kind of had three main major sections in this letter, chapter 1, 2, and 3. And these final verses close the section of chapter 3, but they also close the letter. And, and Peter has this unique way that he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit where he ties all of the whole letter together while also giving his final exhortations about how the church must live in light of the return of Christ. The clear and powerful and compact writing of Peter here is a reminder of the Spirit-inspired nature of this letter. Peter's letters remind us that a holy man, a holy person, is a powerful instrument in the hands of God because it's the Lord that accomplishes this work through Peter. It is a powerful work through a broken and fallen and sinful human vessel. But the way that Peter packs so much in such a small space is such a reminder of God's power at work through him. Peter's been instructing about how the churches must stand firm in the last days, that mocking is going to come. The world is going to hate them. The world is going to blaspheme God and stand up against the truth. And the church must stand firm. We must, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, we must be courageous as we stand against the lies and the deceit and the wickedness of the world. We've seen that the Lord is patient and that he is patient because he desires to bring salvation. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to eternal life the Lord works his plan, plan through this eternal lens that is completely foreign to us in our current state. He's patient, but he's also building up this massive judgment for those who die in their sins. Last week, we saw in verses 11 through 13 that there is this distinct picture of how we must live as the saints of God as we look to the coming kingdom of Christ. Peter said, what type of people must you be in holy conduct and in godliness as you look forward to and as you hasten the coming day of Christ as we strive to bring about his kingdom of righteousness? So that's the build-up to, to what we see. We, we see the conclusion now and Peter just has these, this series of exhortations, a series of instructions that he wants to give the church to undergird and to anchor 
and to empower the church as it goes forward to live out these commands to, to regard the, the delay of the Lord as salvation. We have to see that this all sums up in Christ. When you have this type of series of exhortations, you must remember at the outset that we strive in all of these things Number one, because we're commanded to. Number two, we do knowing that Christ has accomplished all of this for us. Christ is our righteousness. We do not do these things to attain and to build up and to earn a righteousness of our own. We do not do these things to merit our own salvation. We do it because the Lord commands it and because our desire in light of the sacrifice of Christ is to please and to glorify Him not legalistic rule following, it's devotion of the heart to Christ. We look forward to this kingdom in which righteousness dwells. And if that's the kingdom we go to, the Lord is going to prepare us today by conforming us to that image of Christ, by making us more and more and more righteous until he calls us home and we are perfected in that righteousness. As we await the return of Christ, we are about the business of Christ, proclaiming his kingdom and his work and his judgment and his salvation. Ultimately, we are striving to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that to him will be all honor and glory both now and in the day of eternity. So to pare that down to kind of sum this up as a single command, a, a single thesis for our time today. We understand that we are looking to the glorious return and reign of Christ, and as we look to that return and that reign, we must be steadfast against evil, and we must be diligent in our pursuit of peace and godliness. As we look to the kingdom of Christ, we must stand firm against evil and we must be diligent as we pursue godliness, as we pursue peace. So again, it's a, a series of kind of rapid-fire exhortations, and we're just going to look at them. Some will spend more time than others, but I think there's about five exhortations from Peter here to consider how we live in these difficult days. Number one, Peter says that we must be diligent. Verse 14, we must be diligent. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. It is significant that Peter begins this final exhortation, this final call in his final letter when he's written in light of the return of Christ. He begins this final exhortation by saying, saints, you must be diligent. He's, he's done this before. In chapter 1, he said that we must apply all diligence in our faith and in our knowledge and as we grow in godliness. As Peter talks about the return of Christ, his gaze is focused on the church being diligent. You know, there are many self-proclaiming Christians in our day who would question this very statement. That as we stand and proclaim that we as saints and followers of Christ must be diligent in pursuing peace and spotlessness and blamelessness, there are those who would claim Christ that would stand up and say that's merely legalism. You're just following a set of rules. You're just pressing down these things that aren't in the Bible, but it's clear on the pages of Scripture. 
There are those who view this coming kingdom of Christ as a distant, far-off kingdom. And if it's distant and far-off, then they live and let live. They eat and drink and, and decide to be merry and, and will die tomorrow. And then tomorrow will take care of itself. But that is so counter to the command of Scripture. It's utterly false. As we await Christ, we must be diligent. We must be passionate. We must be disciplined and resolved. But there's a big question that comes on the end of all that. In what are we to be diligent? Okay, we, we're called to be diligent, but diligent in what? Well, Peter tells us. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. In peace, spotless, and blameless. Now, peace can, can speak to a lot of different things, both in, in the scriptures and, and even in the culture today. Peace could talk about the absence of war. We're, we're in a time of peace, and, and there's no global wars going on. That, that's a use of the word peace. Or we could talk about the peace of a soul who is assured of their salvation. They know that they are at peace with God, and therefore that soul, that person has peace because they know their eternal end. We could even talk about peace in light of how we are to pursue peace with one another. We are to strive to live at peace with all of our fellow saints. But what's the context of peace here when Peter writes? The context is the tumultuous days at the end when the world mocks and hurls insults and attacks at the church as we await the return of Christ. So he's saying, as we live in these difficult days, we must be at peace. And Calvin would then say that to be found in peace is to have a quiet state of conscience founded on hope and patient waiting. It's that quietness of soul that when the world around us is going crazy, when the walls are closing in, when evil people are attacking, we wait. We stand firm. We hope. We quietly trust in the authority of the Lord. We know that he says he will bring about this kingdom of righteousness. And it's to that kingdom of righteousness that we look. We don't become weak in the knees when we see the world around us caving in. We stand firm because we have peace. Because we have hope. We are, you could say, full of peace because we belong to the Prince of Peace. We belong to the Prince of Peace, and that is what anchors us. That is what holds us, and we are to strive to be diligent, to be found by Christ when He calls us home or when He returns, walking in that peace. This is a peace that is not less than the assurance of salvation, but in many ways, it's so much more than just being assured of salvation. It's being assured of the sovereign power of God to bring about all that he intends. Does our response to suffering, does our response to evil show that we have this anchor of peace? Does our response to the difficulties of life, be it suffering, be it evil, be it persecution, tribulation, or what have you, does it show that we have this peace and, and that we walk in the knowledge and the, and the forward-looking 
nature of the coming of Christ? Does it show that we hold and cling so tightly to the things of this world? Be diligent, Peter says, to be found by Christ in this peace. And there's a natural outworking then of that peace. Be found in this peace, spotless and blameless. Now, now we could separate these out and look at the terms individually, and I think there's some merit to that. But I also think that there, there's a link here that we have to see in MacArthur kind of wrote it beautifully and succinctly, saying that spotless can denote the Christian character. It's the kind of people that believers really are. Blameless then denotes the Christian reputation. It's the kind of righteous and virtuous people that others perceive you to be. So you are spotless because you are washed. Your character is washed in the blood of Christ. And so you're spotless. That is your nature. You're, you're blameless, that is your reputation before the world because that spotless nature works itself out. You're not just spotless in character and then you go live like a devil. You're spotless, you're washed, and you're transformed. And so because your character is spotless, your reputation is blameless because you walk in and pursue righteousness. These are ultimately applied to us by, in, and through Christ. If you try to achieve spotlessness or blamelessness on your own, you will fall so utterly short. But you're washed in Christ, and washed in Him, you are made new. You're a new creature, you're changed, and you walk in a way that is blameless. You walk in a way that is above reproach. You walk in truth. You walk in justice. You walk in mercy. You walk in uprightness. And you do that because the spotless, blameless lamb has borne your curse. The lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. Peter says... Despite this understanding, or even because of this understanding, I think it's probably the better way to say it, because of this understanding of our spotlessness in Christ, because of that, we must be diligent to walk in this. Remember the heading here, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by Christ walking in purity. Christ will come back in an hour that we do not expect, and he must find you walking in holiness. Let's remember, friends, that Christ is coming back not just for a people. He is coming back for a people. But that description, I think, falls short. He is coming back for his bride. The bride that he's washed. The bride that he's cleansed. The bride that he's purified. And so will you be that people? Will you be that spotless, clean bride of Christ? Presented to him in holiness and splendor and glory. Or will you be like a child whose parents have brought them in, washed them, and clothed them, and then the child runs right back out to jump in the mud hole? Will you be like the, the pure driven snow that's wide as far as the eyes can see? Or, or will it be like when the snow starts to melt and you start to see the mud and the grass and, and all the dirt and contaminants pop through it? Will you be pure? Or will you be vile? and wicked, 
and dirty. Peter says, be diligent. Be diligent to walk in the peace of Christ and be found by him spotless and blameless. He continues on another interesting exhortation that he gives in verse 15. Secondly, is that we must be active. So be diligent and be active. Verse 15 begins, and regard the patience of our Lord and salvation. We've looked at this idea a little bit already in this chapter. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Again, this is Peter's last will and testament, his final instruction to the church. And he sees this then as, as chief importance uh, of worthy of his writing at the end through the inspiration of the Spirit. He says you must be active in the work. You must regard the patience of the Lord as salvation and be about the great commission of Christ. If you are in Christ, you have a duty to be a preacher and proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. It's not optional. It's not something that you might say, well, I'm not very good. I'm not real comfortable in those conversations, so I'm just going to let somebody else do it. No, the Lord calls us to go and make disciples. We make disciples when we regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. The Lord delays his return because there are elect sheep of God that Christ died for, that he paid for their sins with his blood at the cross that have not come to him. Regard the patience of God as salvation for those souls. May we not seek a platform, however, to the ends of the earth if we're failing and neglecting the platform within our own homes, our homes, our families, our friends, our co-workers, our immediate sphere of influence, how, how can we claim to go to the ends of the earth if we're not even faithful with the people right in front of us? Our children ought to learn examples of faithful evangelism and faithful discipleship in the home and in the church. There shouldn't have to be these programs and videos and books that they go read. They should see it up close and personal. Your child will never learn to evangelize if you don't firstly evangelize them and then if they don't see you evangelizing and sharing the gospel of Christ with others. What you need, what I need, is to be faithful. To be faithful, to be consumed with the goal and duty of making Christ known. I forget when it was, over the last couple of weeks, one of, the, one of the questions during one of the messages was, when's the last time you shared the gospel? Think about that question again. When is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody that you are confident is going to hell at this moment if they were to die? Remember, the Lord is not wishing or willing that any should perish but that all come to repentance. The Lord employs us as instruments to bring about his plan and his purpose. Dear friends, we must be active. We must be faithful. We're not just blindly busying ourselves with spiritual duties, but we're actively engaging in this commission from Christ to preach the gospel to all men, and then when they come to Christ, we baptize them, 
We disciple them. We teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. As long as the Lord tarries, that is our duty, both as individuals and as the church. So be diligent, be active, and thirdly, we need to be submissive. Specifically, we need to be submissive to the word. Look at uh, verses 15 and into 16. He says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. What's hard to understand here is the way that the NASB translates these verses. It's hard to read. It's hard to understand, but there's a couple of things, I think, to pull out, even just from even a, a cursory reading, okay? So let's think about Peter and Paul. Okay, you remember back in Galatians when Paul says, I oppose Cephas to his face because he stood condemned. He was being legalistic. He was being hypocritical and pharisaical and two-faced because he would live one way around the Jews and another way around the Gentiles. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I rebuked him. And obviously, Peter repented. Now, Peter says, Think about Paul's writing. Obviously, there was that reconciliation. There was a, a hard and a public confrontation. Peter had sinned publicly, so Paul confronted him publicly, and Peter repented. May Peter be an example to us of how to receive correction. Don't buck up just because you don't like how it's brought to you. Submit to the truth. If you are sinning and a brother or sister comes to you and says, Dear friend, you have sinned. Repent of that sin. Let Peter be a model of how to receive correction and how to submit to the word when you are corrected with the word. Let Peter be a model to us. But then we also see, I think, this aspect in these verses uh, of how Peter talks about the authority of Paul's message, that, that he knew Paul was writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so there's that authoritative word in there. And so it's effectively as though Peter's saying, submit to the truth of the word. Submit fully and broadly to the word, even when the word is hard to understand. Even when you come to things that are difficult to understand or difficult to put into practice, submit fully to the word. There are things in Scripture that are harder to interpret, that are more challenging to understand. There, there are concepts like things in eschatology that are hard to understand, but we can still think in light of how do we submit to the truth of Scripture. Even if you don't feel like you have a full grasp and a full understanding, you can still submit to the instructions of the Lord. Two applications that I think we ought to consider in, li in light of this call to be submissive. One is that we must be humble. We must be humble with these difficult things. Again, Peter is, is an apostle. He, he was a follower of Christ. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he says there are things in Paul's writing that are hard to understand. Friends, let's not be so arrogant as to act like we know and have all the answers. There are things that are hard to understand. 
Let's be humble and acknowledge and admit that. And it's okay if you have studied the Word and and come to one conviction of Scripture and then you continue study, you're continuing to be sanctified and understand the broader picture of Scripture more and more. It's okay to, to have a conviction that changes under the authority of Scripture. Under the authority of Scripture. In a lot of ways, that is being a human who is not yet perfected in Christ. But let's also remember that this humble admission of a changed conviction is very different than being blown about by every direction of the wind. It's that you're firmly rooted in the truth. You know the truth. You don't speak quickly. You don't come quickly to conclusions. You build up a robust and strong systematic theology of the whole of Scripture. And then as you study, if you change, you humbly admit, friends, I I was wrong. I, I think maybe baptism should be by immersion rather than sprinkling infants. Just for one thing that some people tend to change their minds on. But on the flip side of that humility... One also consider, friends, that we need to work hard. We, we can't just use that humility as a crutch to say, okay, that's just a hard passage. I just don't know. No, we work hard in studying and, and understanding and seeking to rightly apply the Scripture. We need to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit will illuminate our minds. He will help us understand the truth of God's Word. In our day, simple knowledge and basic understanding will be greatly challenged if you don't go beyond just this basic knowledge and understanding of the Word, you will be so challenged by the world. And even if all you have is just a tiny knowledge, that doesn't mean you waver on the truth. It means that you do the hard work of studying God's Word in the power of the Spirit with with godly and mature brothers and sisters helping to lead you along in the way and you learn more and you prepare yourself to stand firm. So humility and hard work. In the face uh, of mockers who don't believe in the second coming of Christ, what is our response? That we must know the word, we must submit to the word, and we must live the word. So if you're following along, Peter has told us to be diligent, to be active, to be submissive. And then fourthly, he tells us to be steadfast. Be steadfast. Verse 16, the second part of verse 16 and through verse 17, he says, There are these things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. So that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Be steadfast. We must be on guard. We must stand firm. Peter identifies for us what we will be up against. He says that these are untaught and unstable people who distort the difficult things of the Scriptures, but even also the rest, even the easy and clear things, these unstable and untaught people distort all of the Word, all of God's truth that's twisted and perverted and misused. And how are these people described? 
They're untaught and they're unstable. They're literally the opposite of educated and the opposite of those who are stable and standing firm. They're crazy. They are careless when it comes to the truth because they're just going to distort it anyway. So they don't need to know the full truth because they'll take a verse and say it means whatever they want it to mean. Spiritually unstable knowledge is a sign of worldliness. Say that one again. Spiritually unstable knowledge, knowledge of scriptural things that is not stabilized by the working of the Holy Spirit is an indication of worldliness. So we think about this, two responses. One, we ought to be resolved, and the other other is that we ought to be kind of welling up in this sense of pity for these people. We've got to be resolved because these blinded people are going to make war against the truth. These blind people are the enemies of the church because they are our foes because they do Satan's bidding. Okay, We don't make war with those people. We make war with their system of thinking. We make war with their head, Satan himself. But there also ought to be a pity as we think about that because if it were not for God's grace in your life, dear friend, let me assure you that you and I and everyone that you know would fall exactly under the category of being unstable and untaught and uneducated and a distorter of the truth. So have pity. You don't attack the people. You attack their way of thinking. You attack that which is not true, that which is not biblical, that which goes against the instruction of God. This battle is fought with spiritual weapons, walking in the power of God, putting on the armor of God, walking in the power of the Spirit. You make war against the fortresses and the strongholds of evil. We take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's what it means to be steadfast. Peter says, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. We must be steadfast. These are unprincipled men. What, they, what this really means is that they are lawless. It's not just that they don't have a right way of thinking, but they're driven by fleshliness. It's what unprincipled really speaks to is someone who's driven by fleshliness, by worldliness by sinful desires they are pursuing the lust of their flesh we must be ready so that we're not carried away by that fleshliness remember that that's what false teachers do that's what we saw in chapter two is that they try to entice you they're enslaved to their sin and they try to exploit you and entice you they try to make sin look beautiful and and pretty and, and Something like something that you want to pursue. They want to drag you through the mud with them. They want to carry you away. That's the idea. Carried away is the idea of an impulsive person carrying someone away in their impulsive desires. We must stand firm. We must be firmly established because we know, because we walk in the truth. So we must be diligent, we must be active, we must be submissive, we must be steadfast, and fifthly, we must be growing. 
We must be growing. Peter kind of ends with what he began with, growing specifically in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Look at verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see that the way that we pursue this goal, the way that we pursue all of these exhortations is wrapped up in the person and the work of Christ. That's the summary command, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To be steadfast, we must walk in and know His grace. To be submissive to His Word, we must know the author of this Word. To be active in proclaiming the gospel, we must be walking with the Savior whom we proclaim. Walking with Him and transformed by Him. And to be diligent in pursuing holiness is to walk daily in the Lord's strength and in the grace that He supplies. You must grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the means and the end. He is the goal. He is the standard. He is the prize. But He is also the means to reach that. It's by knowing Him, by walking in the power that He gives and the grace that He supplies. That is how we are pressed on in our walk, in our pursuit of Christ. To be steadfast, to be a faithful steward, you must pursue greater knowledge and greater understanding of Christ. But let's also not miss here that Peter uses a very active verb when he tells us that we must grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's active imperative present tense ongoing it's something in which we must strive this is not let go and let god this is strive and pursue in the strength and grace that he supplies there must be understanding of our continual shortcomings if you ever think that you've reached the mountaintop of your christian walk You're going to utterly fall on your face. You must be growing, and you grow because you know you've not reached the prize and that you press on toward that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when you look around the world, I think in a way it's easy to sometimes feel like, oh yeah, we've got it together. You know, the the world is over here, and and they're living this way, and, and we're rejecting so much of this. So you kind of start to, you can start to think, oh, you know, I've got it together. I believe the right things. I'm pursuing the right things. Well, friend, you must understand that you must always be growing and pressing on. You must be humble knowing that there remains an unbreachable gap between your present righteousness and the righteousness of the coming kingdom of Christ. That unbreachable gap remains until the day that you see Christ face to face. And if that gap remains, you must always be striving. So Peter then brings us to an abrupt and I think eternally fitting end at the end of verse 18. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let it be. This must be our desire. This 
must be our goal all of life to the glory of God. Every word, every thought, every deed, every action, all of it to the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ now and to the day of eternity. That is what we strive for, the glory of Christ in all things. We must, to achieve this, we must lay aside every encumbrance. We must lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us and entangles us and holds us back, and we must then run with endurance. We must persevere. Our race to eternity is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Dear friend, you must run. You must run with endurance. It's a marathon that we run together as the family of God, looking for and striving to bring about the kingdom of righteousness. That's Peter's stark and abrupt end. So I think a stark and abrupt end is appropriate for us as well. May we reflect the glory of Christ in all things. May we proclaim the gospel of Christ at all times. And may we walk in the grace of Christ in all circumstances, all to His glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Let's pray.